So flip to Romans 9, if you have your Bibles out. Romans 9, 1 through 13 is where we're going to look today. We are going to talk about the unfailing word, the unfailing word, that being the word of God. So Romans 9, verse 1, I'm going to read it, and then we'll take a look, uh, pray, and then we'll look at the text. Romans 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Note that. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we have gathered today to honor and serve you. We are thankful that your word never fails. And in light of this, we ask that you would equip us with your spirit so we may be prepared to win the battles that you have placed before us. We ask and pray that this nation would turn to you, but only after your people turn to you first. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, we are entering into what is the most difficult section of Romans, no doubt. Um, not least because Paul spends a significant... It seems like he takes this significant tangent away to what he was talking about. Um, we're going to break this section up, by the way, as, as we go, just because I think we should take our time with it. And, and I, I think there's a lot of deep truths. And if we're going to explore those deep truths, we need to make sure we're you know, giving an adequate time. So it seems like Romans 9 through 11, Paul just takes this tangent from what he was talking about. He has spent, as we've studied, he's spent considerable time drilling down into the great gospel promise that it's God who justifies. Sort of, a, you listen to a great song and there's always that part of the song that just gets you. It's the crescendo. That seems to be these points in Romans where Paul just says, it is God who justifies. And for us, that's that point of the song. That's this brilliant moment in, in the song. So it's God who justifies. And while this can certainly make us very jovial, very happy, very elated, and as it should be, it's no small thing, however, that many of the Jews who had rejected the Messiah, many of the Jews who had rejected Jesus, they also rejected Paul. If you remember the story of Saul, he was on their team. He was breathing threats. He was chasing down the Christians. He was not happy with this new sect. 
And then, of course, we know in Acts that uh, Jesus met Saul, temporarily blinded him, converted him, and then sent him on the mission to the Gentiles. So Saul was his Hebrew name, Paul being his, his Greek name, or his Roman name. The, he was sent forward on this great mission, but now he switched teams. <laughs> now he has the Jewish leaders who hated Jesus coming after him as well. So Paul had a lot of skin in the game. So he says earlier that no one can bring a charge against the elect of God because it is God who justifies. No one can bring a charge. Great. But what about those who like to apply pressure? What about those who try to get you to recant your belief in the Messiah? Whose bloodthirst wouldn't hesitate to end your life? Remember, Saul oversaw the stoning of Stephen, one of the first early deacons of the church. Stephen delivered a powerful message, and they put him to death because of it. So what about that type of pressure in your life? Um, do you, in the face of hostility, still want to keep preaching Jesus the Messiah? And Paul, of course, he's resolute in his answer. He says, absolutely. He was resolute in his, in his preaching. We should be the same. So this, this problem, though, in the early church of unbelieving Jews was no doubt always at the forefront of Paul's mind, especially as he's dictating this letter to Tertius, who was the one who would have taken it. Um, he dictated it, and others would have taken it. So he's already brought up the issue of Jews and Gentiles in chapters 1 and 2. He's already danced around the issue in chapter 7 with the pre-Christian eye. Uh, Jordan referenced the old man. That's the eye of chapter 7, being the person who's dead in sin, who needs salvation. Who needs, who needs Christ. So he's already kind of touched on these issues. So, but but underlying, underlying all of Romans, essentially, are these two major points of consideration. One, what do we do about unbelieving Israel? The, the Messiah had come. The Messiah was turned over to the Romans. The Romans killed Jesus. They were culpable, of course, those who, the religious leaders, there were thousands of Jews who converted under the preaching and ministry of Peter in the early book of Acts. But by and large, most of the Jewish leaders, most of the Jewish people were unbelieving. They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. And there were other Messiah figures. Bar Kokhba came years later. He led a revolt. And there were always these Messiah figures. But Jesus, of course, was crucified and he was raised from the dead. So underly underlying all of this, Underneath all of it is, what, what do we do about unbelieving Israel? And two, in light of that, what do we do with the faithfulness of God? If all these promises were for the Jews, to the Jew first, he says, and then the Greek, if all those promises are there, what do we deal with? How do you deal with the fact that most of them didn't embrace Christ as their Savior? What do we do, what do, we do about that? And what does that say about God and His faithfulness? So Paul's gospel, which is simply the gospel, answers this question, but it's not without significant pushback. We know that God has accomplished in Christ what he has always accomplished, but many Jews in the first century struggled to see the connection. How does the death of a Messiah, Messiah is supposed to be a political figure who conquers Rome, how does his death and then his resurrection, how do we deal with all of that? How do we deal with Rome who's still breathing threats? Um, we didn't just get zapped off the planet and go to heaven when we came to Christ. So <laughs> what are we supposed to do in the meantime? That sort of thing. 
So in order to help them see, in order to help the early church see, this church in Rome, Paul tells the story of Israel all over again, but he's demonstrating, this is what Romans is, he's demonstrating how Jesus is the climax of the covenant, to borrow a book title from N.T. Wright. He's the climax of the covenant. Everything the Old Testament was teaching brought us to this moment in Christ Everything is now centered on Jesus. He has taken priority. So everything promised to Abraham, everything promised to Israel, everything the prophets preached, everything the writings and the history of of Israel had taught, everything was rushing forward into this moment. It had come to fruition. And Paul says, God has not failed. God's word has not failed. Because it's easy. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians about Jesus, uh, the cross is a stumbling block to Jews. Why? Because a dead Messiah is a, not a good Messiah. He needs to be alive. Of course, we have, the resurre- we have the resurrection. To the Greeks, it was absolutely absurdity. A dead and, and raised Messiah, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. <laughs> That's insanity. We follow Plato. We follow, Socrat- follow Socrates and Aristotle. We don't, we don't deal with such trivialities. So the gospel truly is offensive, but it's not that God's word has failed. So part of what Paul had to navigate here was this long-standing dilemma of anti-Jewish sentiment in Rome. The Romans hated the Jews. In the 40s, this is just a decade after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Jews were expelled from Rome. They were expelled. They, they had to leave. If they didn't leave, they would be killed they all had to leave, and probably thousands of them left, if not tens of thousands. By then, of course, by the 40s, just 10 years after the tomb was emptied, because Christ was risen, by then the gospel had already spread to Rome. We know there were people from Rome listening to the pe- preaching of Peter. People from all over the world were there. Peter preached the message. They became Christians, and they took the message with them. But by then, it had already spread to Rome, and so no doubt there were already Gentile Christians who were in Rome, stuck between a rock and a hard, pla- a rock and a hard place. Imagine our church here, you know, 50, 60 of us, I don't know, borderline 70 these days. Um, we are in a position where what if half the church was forced to leave America? You're just gone. You're sent out. That's what would have happened in early church in this, in this church in Rome. Probably a small house church. Maybe a dozen people, maybe 50, we don't know. But half of them were probably sent out because they were Jews. And now what? <laughs> now what do we do? When Claudius died, Claudius died in 54 AD. And in 54 AD, the Jews came back to Rome. Um, Nero had taken over. Nero was not yet the crazy man that he was. We'll deal with that in Romans 13 later. Um, he eventually lost his mind. But Claudius died. The Jews came back to Rome, probably several thousand of them. So you couple this weird social dynamic with the fact that there was growing animosity in Judea. So we're talking about Rome in Italy. Now you go back to Israel in Judea. There was this growing tension, this cultural situation that eventually led to the Roman Jewish wars of 66 through 70 A.D. So this is like the, I've just given you the background historically. This is the tension point. And the reason I bring this history up is because Paul tells, he tells Israel's history, going back to Adam already and Abraham, he tells the history, he, brought, he brings that history to its zenith in Christ. 
in order to basically upstage and outshine the Roman narrative. Rome, keep in mind, when I, I went to Rome, um, when was it, 2009, I finished seminary, we took a trip there, spent the day in Rome, and it was fascinating because you can still go to the old ruins. You can see the Ark of Constantine, you can see the Ark of Titus. Ark of Titus has a menorah on it because it was Titus who conquered the Jews. Uh, he brought back with them the, the plunder of Israel. Um, you can see all these you know, 2,000-year-old things. It's amazing. The Colosseum's there. You can just walk right by on the sidewalk and see all this history. But one of the things you will also see is that the Romans, they had a lot of gods. Some of the Greek gods got, you know, sort of graft, grandfathered into Roman culture. You had all of these temples, um, crazy uh, the cults and temple prostitution. You had an insane amount of paganism in, in Rome. But all of those narratives, all of those narratives were nothing because Christ is better. He, not Caesar, is Lord of the world. That's the, that's the narrative. And by the way, given our current uh, tyrannical experiment, with lockdowns and so on. It's, a, it's a, an attempt at lordship. It's an attempt at sovereignty. It's a gospel issue. And it's the same thing back in the time of Rome. Rome believed that the Caesar was lord of the world. He was the savior. It was even printed on the money. And, and here we have Christ saying, no, no, no. Actually, Jesus, the Christians are saying Jesus is lord. So let's look at our passage real quick and, and just kind of walk through it. Here in verse 1, Paul begins, he takes an oath. He takes an oath, and at first it seems really confusing as to what he's talking about. He just came off this post-mill high, this, this sugar rush of post-millennialism in, in chapter 8, but now his demeanor changes drastically. He says he speaks the truth, he's not lying, and he calls forth two witnesses, one, his conscience, and two, the Holy Spirit. Two witnesses to give testimony. The truth he's communicating is the great sorrow, verse 2. This great sorrow, this unceasing anguish that's in his heart. His heart is heavy. His, heart is, his sorrow is continual. This is a man who is grieving. If you've lost a loved one, you know that grieving is part of the process. We grieve. We're sorrowful. And one of the ways we explain it is our heart is heavy. It's not as if more blood rushed in and physically it's heavy, but it's a way that we deal with it. It's an emotional process. His heart is heavy. His soul is crushed. He feels down about something. What's the concern? He says in verse 3, he could, note that word, okay? That's there for a reason. He could wish himself to be anathematized. The, the word there for accursed is anathema. He could wish himself to be anathematized, to be separated from Christ, which, think about what he just said before that, who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Well, nothing can. But here he is saying, well, I could wish myself separated from Christ. If it were even possible, I could wish this for the sake of his family, he says, for unbelieving Israel. This is a man who loves people. He wants to serve his people. And more specifically, in verse 4, he calls his kinsmen Israelites. They are the people of Abraham, the people of Isaac, the people of Jacob. The people, uh, remember Jacob's name after he wrestled with presumably pre-incarnate Jesus? His name was changed to Yisrael in Hebrew, Israel. His name was Israel. 
These are the people of God. To them belongs this laundry list of blessings and gifts, he says in verse 4. Adoption. Israel was adopted. They were God's son. They were brought out of Egypt. Hosea 11.1 says the same thing. Glory. The glory belonged to them. What glory? The the Shekinah glory of God's presence in the temple. The glory of, of Adam before he sinned. That glory. The covenants belonged to them. Of Adam, of Noah, to Abraham, and David. All of that belongs to them. What about the giving of the law? The giving of the law was for the people of God, the Israelites. From God, through Moses, to Israel. The law came from God, through the hands of Moses, to the people of God, to Israel. To them belongs worship. The, the sa- sacrificial system, the temple services, the worship in the temple, that, that was theirs. The tabernacle first, then the temple. To them belong the promises, this prophetic word of Israel's prophets, the promises of God. Think of Isaiah 60 through 66, this new heavens and new earth. There were all these promises. They were given to who? To the Jews, to the Israelites. By the way, Jew, and we're going to get into this a little later, uh, Jew simply is from someone from Judah, became simply a, a way of describing someone who is in covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And um, there's more to that, but we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to it in a minute. So all of these privileges were given to Israel according to the flesh. But now, thanks to the work of the Messiah, they are given to those in Christ. Paul says this early in Romans, to the Jew first and then the Greek. The Jews had the priority because they were in covenant with God. Then it was to go to the Greek. He says in verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs. Think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob these legendary people in history that the Jews, and we ought to do the same, who they looked up to. On top of this blessing, it was Jesus of Nazareth, a real Jewish man born to a real Jewish family, the Virgin Mary and and Joseph, his adopted father, from the tribe of Judah. Jesus was the son of Jacob. He was the son of David, who came from the Israelites according to the flesh. Jesus was not born to a Gentile family. He was brought into this line, this covenantal line, the Israelites. And he says in verse 5, He is God over all. Indeed, He's blessed forever. And God's people said, Amen. So having having retraced Israelite history, demonstrating its continuity with the Messiah, Paul then states the obvious in verse 6. And this is kind of where we'll end our time in a little bit. He says, the word of God has most assuredly not failed. Seems odd that he would say that. But part of his point is, is here's your history. Here's Jesus. That's not a failure of the word of God. A bloody cross and an empty tomb is not a failure. Some discontinuous event that has nothing to do with Israel's history. No, 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 no. God's word is unfailing. God has kept his promises. So in light of Gentiles who were now coming into the kingdom, who were coming into the fold, who were being baptized, who were repenting and believing, they were brought into this covenant. In light of them coming into the fold, and some Jews as well, and in light, and in light of the fact that most Jews not confessing um, Jesus as Messiah, in light of all of that, one, one might be very much tempted to think that the word of God has failed. Or worse yet, that the God of the word has failed in being faithful to Israel. How do you explain, you know, a few thousand Jews converting to the gospel 
the vast majority of them not, does that look like a failure on God's part? All these promises, the promise of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, Ezekiel, what is that, 37, right? Look, the Valley of Dry Bones. God um, spoke through Christ, and a lot of those bones, guess what? They didn't actually rise. They didn't get put back together in resurrection, in new life, the new covenant. Is it a failure? Paul says, no, it's not. God's word has not failed. Um, this isn't true because not all who are descendants of Israel belong to the true Israel of God. Verse 6, not all Israel are Israel. Israel stumbled, not God. God is faithful, as we'll see. To reiterate in verse 7, not all who are physical children of Abraham are children of Abraham. Note that. Not all physical children are children of Abraham. <laughs> Being the good biblical scholars that you all are, why does he say that? Paul cites Genesis 21.12, and he states the obvious. He's going to prove his point. He's going to prove why he says what he says. There are two children of Abraham. Kids, any of you remember the two children of Abraham? Do you remember? I'll give you a second. Do you know Jack? Okay, you, I thought you raised your hand. Who were Abraham's children? I'll give you a hint. Remember that Abraham had a son with Sarah's maidservant. Her name was Hagar. Scandalous, I know. Say it again. Okay. Isaac and who? Close. Ishmael. Remember Ishmael. Good. Just testing, testing grounds here. So through Abraham was the father of two children. We had Isaac, who was the second born, the son of Sarah. And then you had Ishmael, who was the firstborn, the son of Hagar. And there's this tension in the story. God promised Abraham and Sarah a child, a child of the promise. Abraham says, all right, well, let's get this thing going. Sarah, you, you know, step aside for a second. And they have Ishmael. But what does God say? That's not the child of the promise. No way. That's a child of Abraham, but not a child of the promise. The child of the promise was Isaac. God was faithful to his promise. So who was the promise for? It was Isaac. So the seed of Abraham was never intended to include every single physical descendant. The seed of Abraham. And the point is this, and this is verses 8 and 9. Promise and covenant comes before blood. Promise and covenant comes before blood. By the way, this is where dispensationalists get confused because they don't understand this principle of covenant theology. In the Old Testament, it does not matter if you are a son, a physical son, a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or any of the 12 tribes. Your great-great-granddaddy could have been um, Joseph, or it could have been one of the other, um, Dan, or one of the other kids of Jacob. It did not matter. It was always covenant membership. Always. It was always covenant, not blood. That's why you have in, in the story of Esther, many people becoming Jews. Well, how do you become a Jew if you're not born of, in the line of Abraham? Well, you, come a, you become a Jew through the act of circumcision and through the covenantal vow, the covenantal oath of worshiping the God of, of Israel, Yahweh himself. 
So promise and covenant comes before blood. Offspring, then, is contingent upon promise, upon election, and, up, uh, and upon covenant, not DNA. So it doesn't matter that David was your great-great-granddaddy. It doesn't matter. Or are you in covenant with Yahweh? That's the issue. Now, some people might split hairs at that example. Sarah was Abraham's wife. Sarah was Abraham's wife. Hagar was the maidservant of Sarah. So clearly, God would choose Sarah because she was the priority. Not so fast. He moves on to Jacob's story, and we have something different in verses 10 through 11. Esau and Jacob, our brothers, they were both conceived in the womb of Rebekah, their mother, at the very same time. The very same moment. They shared the same exact mother. And if you remember, Jacob grabbed the heel of Esau. Esau was the one who was born first. She had uh, two, two sons. And Jacob was born second, uh, moments later. So they shared the same mom, and yet the purposes of God's election and covenant promise came before they were born, he says. Before they were born, God had chosen something. Rebekah was told, the older shall serve the younger. Verse 12. And this leads to Paul's first major point in this section of Romans 9, here in verse 13. Remember, he's proving the unfailing word of God by rehearsing Israel's story, and he quotes Malachi 1, 2, and 3, and he says, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. See that in your verse? In your Bible? Jacob I loved, Esau, but Esau I hated. You have to understand Malachi to understand Paul. Malachi's point is that Esau, the people of Edom, have suffered all of this devastation, and while they try to rebuild in their haughty, God-hating aspirations, guess what? God will thwart it. That's what Malachi is telling them. So, of course, Paul, as is Paul's point here early on in Romans 9, God's love and God's covenantal favor to Israel was not so that they could boast and do what one theologian said, call it this effortless superiority. We are children of Abraham. Ha! You can't touch us. And of course, Jesus said they were children of the devil in John 6. But instead, instead of being this superior people, Israel was not to be the superior group of people that were being haughty and arrogant in their in their uh, place in the world. Instead, they were to be humbled. They were to be grateful. They were not to be proud. They were not to be arrogant. So, to reiterate the point of this section, God's word has not failed because he has always declared from the beginning that he would work through Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau. And this pattern of election, God choosing is based on covenant and promise. It's not based on blood. And guess what? It continues all the way up to Paul's day. And it's the same thing for us today. So let's pull out a few things. Part of the difficulty in applying this passage lies in the fact that we don't have the same exact challenges that the Roman church had in the first century with half of the church being sent away, <laughs> thousands of miles away, hundreds of miles away. We don't feel the same pressures that they felt with regard to the Jew-Gentile relationships, and that's okay. However, despite that particular issue, I think there's a lot of things we can learn. One thing we can learn is to feel the way that Paul feels. This is a robust language, sorrow in his heart, anguish in his heart. You, know, you look at the state of the, of the world around you, we should probably feel sorrowful. 
but not without hope. <laughs> Certainly not without the post-millennial teeth that we have in Christ, who is the Lord of glory. As an, an apostle, as a pastor, Paul cared for his people. He was willing to do the same thing that Moses had done in Exodus 32, 32, to be cursed for the sake of others. Remember, God, Moses went to God and said, you know, kill me, spare them. The only person who can actually say that is Christ. Kill me, spare them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But Paul has the same attitude. I wish that I could be accursed if that meant these tens of thousands of Jewish brothers and sisters who don't believe in Jesus would come and know Jesus. That's humility. That's a level of love that not many people exhibit. So like Moses, Paul is leading people out of the sin that is Egypt. If only they'll stop and listen and heed. And amazingly, as I referenced earlier, Paul has said already in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Not death, not tribulation, not distress. There's literally nothing on this planet that we can conjure up that can somehow sever or separate the gospel that we have given to us. And yet, in light of that statement, he was willing, if it were only possible, to throw himself in judgment if that meant the salvation of unbelieving Israel. Your friends that are unbelievers, your neighbors, this community, are you willing to do the same? Is that your attitude? Is your attitude, God, I'll curse me if that means saving the rest of Fauquier County, Prince William County, Northern Virginia. You know, I, I pray often that God would either convert Bill Gates and Fauci and Trump and Northam and all these people or get them out of the way. <laughs> like King Herod, who was giving a speech and dropped over dead. You know, either God's going to convert a man like Bill Gates, or he's going to destroy him. And it'll be just either way. So, but our, is that our attitude towards others? That's a good question to ask, I think. This type of love is, is real. This type of love is palpable. This is love that is expressed in self-sacrifice, which incidentally is the same thing Christ had done. It's the model we have in Christ. We also see in this passage Paul's perspective on the Word of God. It is utterly unfailing. In no possible way can the Word of God fail, for the Word of God is the express will of the Creator God. God does not fail to achieve what He intends to accomplish. He never fails. He never fails in what He promises. God's Word does not fail. In looking at the world around us, we may be tempted to think otherwise. We have this hotly contested election with reports of fraud. We have a pandemic that has been built on fear. And incidentally, that means the only thing that it can do is perpetuate fear. You are taught to fear so much that healthy people aren't even allowed and permitted to be healthy anymore. You must, by default, be viewed as a sick person. Um, like preemptive... Uh, Preemptive justice, preemptive um, health. And then on and on and on we go. And we may at times be tempted to think that the wheels are falling off and it's inevitable that we're just going to go into the ditch. And of course, while sometimes going into the ditch is part of the sovereign plan of God, it's not as though the word of God has failed. See, the tension that Paul addresses has everything to do with social concerns in the Roman church. And the way he deals with it is by going to the Bible. 
And the Old Testament, from the very start, from the very beginning, made it impossible to presume upon the riches and grace of God. Paul says this later uh, in 1 Corinthians. What do you have that you have not received? Kids, what do you have that you have not received? What did you have in this world that was, that was yours? What did you bring into the world? The only thing we bring into the world is our sin and rebellion. That's it. Everything you have, your parents have either given you, and everything that they have to be, even, to be able to give it to you, they've been given it. You might say, well, I work hard. I work hard and I make money. Right. That's a grace of God. <laughs> what do you have that you've not received? You don't have anything. That's the point. So he goes to the Bible. We can't presume upon the grace of God. Everything is contingent upon the grace of God. Everything rests on the grace of God. And then he says there were always Jews, and then there were always faithful Jews. To be a Jew, he says earlier, is to be one inwardly. Remember that from earlier in Romans? To be a Jew is to be one inwardly, and to be that circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. He says that all the way back in chapter 2. So it's of the heart by the Spirit, not the knife. This is Covenant Theology 101. There are those who in the covenant, there are those in the covenant who are visibly part of the covenant, but without a heart that's circumcised. And then there are those who are visibly part of the covenant with heart circumcision. So kids, you've been baptized, you've been brought into this covenant, and it is your job to obey King Jesus and to fight for joy in your life, to follow him at every turn. You hear, all of you kiddos, did you hear me? I want you to know this. You have to fight for joy in your life. Fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ. To believe his promises, to believe that he has not failed you, and nor will he ever, ever fail you. So you've been brought in. You are visibly part of the covenant. So fight for that. The reason Paul will spend so much time rehearsing Israel's story is to prove that God's covenantal program has not changed. His covenantal program in history has not changed. Think of it this way. Not all who are of the church are the church. Not all who are of Israel are Israel, right? Not all who are of the church are the church. They are in the church, potentially baptized and so forth, but their hearts have never been circumcised by the Holy Spirit. But this is a feature of the covenant. is not a failure of the covenant. God gives us time. God gives us grace. We want what we want are children of the promise, not children of the flesh. So th this is why being a Christian parent, giving your kids a Christian education is so important. They should not be taught to think that works give them anything. Kids, you have no need to try to prove yourself to your parents. They love you unconditionally. No need to prove it. I've, so many people, because of absent fathers, all these different things, struggle with affirmation. So think about what Christ was told when he was baptized. That you are my son. With you, I'm, I'm well pleased. Kids, you are, you are the children of your parents. You, your parents are pleased with you. They love you. You don't have to try to work that or earn that. That's, that's like a picture of election. You've been chosen by God. You've been brought into this family. You've been brought into the covenant. God loves you. 
Children, you have been bought with the blood of Christ, and you must trust in it. You must trust in it. It's the same thing for you parents, all the adults in this room. You have been bought with the blood of Christ, and you must trust in Him. So what matters more than blood, at least family blood, is covenant. And what is the covenant built on? The blood of Christ, the only thing that can secure a covenant. Which is why Jesus said that following Him may entail, by the way, forsaking family. What matters more than works is election and sovereign grace. And it is God who does it all from the front to the back, from the beginning to end. And finally, the last thing I want to say uh, pertains to what I'm just going to call covenantal snobbery. (laughs) Covenantal snobbery. Paul will come back to this in a little while, but it's worth mentioning here. The main point of the passage, at least the central point of focus that I see is this. God has chosen you, not so you could hoard that gift to yourself and think yourself to be rather special. That was the error of the unbelieving Jews. That was their error. They were given a covenant. They had, to them belong all these things, but they had hoarded it and thought themselves to be special when Isaiah says they were to be a light to the nations. So God has chosen you. Natural privilege is worthless. That's what Paul is saying to his deeply beloved kinsmen. The people he's groaning about and struggling with, his brothers and sisters, natural privilege is worthless. His fellow Israelites who are not worshiping and serving Christ Jesus, it's worthless. Your natural privilege, it means nothing. God's love for Paul is deeper than Paul's love for his own blood family. And all of that is because the word of God is not nullified. And this is one thing, by the way, that doesn't change in the New Testament. God has always been a covenantal God. And I, I, trip, I say this a lot to dispensational brothers and sisters because I want them to think a little bit differently. Did you know that Abraham wasn't a Jew? <laughs> Who are the Jews? The people of Abraham. Abraham was not a Jew. Abraham was a pagan who worshipped pagan gods. God chose him sovereignly, set his grace on him, and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you and you're going to bless the nations. Abraham was not a Jew. No doubt he was the first Jew, if by Jew you mean somebody who is in covenant with God with the sign of circumcision and so on. He was the father of the Israelite nation. He was to be the father of many nations and his family was the covenantal agent to accomplish it. So it's not blood, it's covenant. For you today, this is what this means. It's not church tradition, it's covenant. It's not church liturgy, it's covenant, though it can be a blessing, right? It's not church membership, it's covenant. It's not a Christian family, it's about the covenant. It's not even about taking communion, it's the covenant. All those things are good things, but left alone to themselves, they are bad things. Because it gives you a false assurance. You need the blood of Christ, not a church membership you know, piece of paper. You need the blood of Christ. So being brought into this covenant, what we call the Christian faith, isn't so that you can sit back, prop your feet up, and take things easy. By the way, the Christian church today, the modern church, has taken the easy route, which is why we're in the mess we're in. It's not about taking the easy route. Jesus said, take up your cross, not your pillow. Nor is it to escape the world, no matter how hard things get. And there are a lot of people wanting to escape the world right now. 
The point, point of the covenant was so that you, being special, being chosen by God, would never take it for granted, never forget to honor God, never relegate your faith to the periphery, and never ignore God's kingdom and then cruise through life. This pietistic superiority of being too good to labor for the kingdom is just not going to pass. To whom much is given, much is required. We have been given a bloody cross. We have been given an empty tomb. And on top of that, the word of God has not failed. God's covenant purposes for history and the exaltation of his son in history is unfailing, no matter how ludicrous the world gets. So, church, don't assume the gospel in your life to the point where you're not living in it, you're not obeying it, you're not considering it. Don't read the newspapers in fear. Read your Bible and trust. Christ, not Caesar, is on the throne, and you can rest assured. The world we know in Adam is just nothing but brokenness and death and tyranny and oppression, but the world that Christ is making is a world of sovereign grace, love, law, and prosperity. The Word of God has not failed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, that your word is true, that it has not failed, that um, you are accomplishing what it is that you desire to accomplish. And we pray that we would not uh, make the same mistake as unbelieving Israel, as being an unbelieving church, the mistake of thinking that your promises are subject to change, that your promises are um, maybe just they're in the fine print and no one can ever find them, so why bother searching? No, you've given us your word. You've given us history. You've given us, most importantly, this King Jesus gospel that is to go into the world. So we thank you that your word does not fail. It does not return void. So we pray that we would stand on it, that your church would stand on it, and that the church would proclaim the excellencies of this good news. So we ask, Father, as we go and partake in fellowship, that you would be with us, that we would be encouraged and spurred on towards love and good deeds. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.